SaaS companies, the, the great ones, do a phenomenal job at winning, keeping, and growing. Most SaaS companies are not great SaaS companies. Most SaaS companies focus on winning new customers and keeping customers. But so few companies focus on how do we grow our current marketplace? How do we get them to pay us more next year than they paid us this year? And that is, to me, the biggest issue in pricing in the world of SaaS. You're listening to GTM Disrupted with Mike Smart of Egress Solutions. Learn how product management and product marketing thought leaders are rethinking their business strategies to thrive in a world of radical change. Hi, this is Mike Smart and welcome to Go to Market Disrupted. I have Mark Stiving with me today. Mark is a chief pricing educator. And I just have to say, I love that title. Um, we'll talk about what that means We'll get into that. And what we're also going to talk about today is value, pricing, and selling. Specifically, what we want to talk about is how to capture the value an organization creates and how to sell at higher prices. But before we dive in, I'm going to share a little bit more about our guest. Mark is an educator at heart and a pricing expert by education and experience. He helps companies win more business at higher prices by delivering programs to help his clients communicate and capture more value. For 30 years, Mark has led, coached, and taught businesses to extract more of the value they create. He has driven company-wide pricing initiatives worth hundreds of millions of dollars in profit. In his most recent book, Selling Value, How to Create More Deals at Higher Prices, Mark applies his pricing expertise to some sales methodologies and has some surprising insights. I am really pleased to have you here today with us, Mark. Thanks for spending some time with us. Before we dive into the questions, I gave a real short thumbnail of your background. I wonder if you would take a few minutes, share some of your background, maybe the path that you've taken to get where you are with the audience. We'd really appreciate it. I'll give you the really fun path. So when I was 12 years old, I remember going to the grocery store with my mom and seeing prices that ended in nine, right? So 69 or 99. And I always wondered, why do companies do that? Do they think we're stupid? We know 99 is a dollar. So 20 years later, I found myself at a doctoral program at UC Berkeley, and I get a chance to play with scanner panel data. Now, this is the data that grocery stores collect when you use your loyalty cards, and I was able to statistically test whether nine cents matters or not. And it turns out it does. It, does. it, yes. it works because we are lazy subtractors. But I became absolutely addicted to understanding how people use prices to make decisions. And from that point on, it's then how do companies make better decisions knowing how people are using prices to make decisions. Okay. Intriguing, one that you started out in your career when you were nine, <laughs> and you stuck with it to get a PhD. That's fabulous. I'm curious, and I, you and I know each other. We go back a long way, and we have a company we share in common, and I'll mention it, and we can certainly talk about it favorably because we both had good times there, Pragmatic Institute. I'm curious, though, when you scan back and look at sort of the B2B SaaS industry today, What's your current take, given your expertise and the strategies you see being played out by SaaS companies specifically relative to price and price value? 
Boy, what a hard question to just answer generically. I know. That's your first question. I put the industry in a in a box in 30 seconds. I'm sorry. I'll I'll categorize. I'll subtract. I'll subtract it. I'll take it back. How about sharing just your point of view on how you think pricing, the dynamics of pricing has changed in the last couple of years? Well, first off, I think that SaaS has done wonders for pricing. The fact that... I, at least for me, I don't know about you, I grew up in a more of a transactional business. And in fact, I even remember uh, you used to buy software because you'd go down to Fry's Electronics and pull a box of shrink wrap software off the shelf and you actually bought the thing. You didn't subscribe to anything. And as soon as- You have to tell started, some people what Fry's Electronics is, Mark, because a lot kind of, of people don't know. <laughs> Fry's Electronics is like Best Buy for geeks. <laughs> And um, used to be my favorite store, by the way. But when we went to SaaS, it changed the way we start thinking about our business. And, and in fact, that happens to be the title of my second book because it, it changes it so dramatically. Uh, that book is called Win, Keep, Grow. And what's different is in the old days, I needed you to buy my software off the shelf. But nowadays in SaaS, I need you to choose my software. And then I need to keep you paying me month after month after month. And then ideally next year, I get you to pay me more money than you paid me last year. And so I need to win customers. I need to keep customers. I need to grow customers. We're now managing three revenue streams where we used to care about a single revenue stream. So let's go back to my original question now that we've warmed up on it. Give us your thoughts about how you see clients then using pricing as a strategy today in that in that environment? Yes, the word pricing is a really weird word. Um, I often say that I'm a pricing expert to people and I know what's going through their mind is you put a number on a product. And of course we do that, but what we do is so much bigger than that because we start with understanding how do our customers perceive the value of our products. And so when I start thinking about uh, pricing and what's going on in the world of pricing, it's really, are we as companies truly understanding and utilizing the knowledge of how our customers value our products? And so I'm gonna jump back to the answer I gave you before on SaaS and that was win, keep, grow. But it turns out that SaaS companies, the, the great ones, do a phenomenal job at winning, keeping, and growing. Most of them do not, right? Most SaaS companies are not great SaaS companies. Most SaaS companies focus on winning new customers and keeping customers. And that's because you know winning customers is hard and you've always thought about it. And if you're losing those customers that you've won, it feels really painful. And so we focus a lot on how do we keep them? but so few companies focus on how do we grow our current marketplace? How do we grow our customers? How do we get them to pay us more next year than they paid us this year? And that is to me, the biggest issue in pricing in the world of SaaS. And it isn't about the dollar, it's about how did I choose a market segment? How did I package my product so I could get someone to upgrade from my good to my better package? How did I choose a pricing metric so that as they're using more of my product, they end up paying me more money? So help us a little bit understand some concrete examples of those companies you would consider being great at SaaS. 
So who comes to mind for you? And what is it? What parts of that are they doing or executing well? I have one company that I talk about, I rave about all the time because I so love what they do. And that is LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is the best pricing company. I mean, there are probably some that are better, but the fact that I use them, I know them, I, I, I know what's going on. It's incredible. So the first thing they do, which is so different than what you would expect, is the way they do their market segmentation. And by the way, market segmentation is crucial if we're going to do pricing. It's also crucial if we're going to do product packaging and marketing, but it's really important for pricing as well. And so, hey, we came from Pragmatic. We know the definition of a market segment is a group of companies or individuals with a common set of problems. So most companies would probably say, oh, we've got Asia as a market. We've got US as a market. We've got Europe as a market. Or they might say, oh, we've got medical industry. We've got industrial. We've got software. But LinkedIn doesn't do that. What LinkedIn says is, you know, we think that people have problems recruiting, they have problems selling, they have problems looking for jobs, and then we take everybody else and bundle them into a bucket we call professional. So they've defined four really clear market segments. Now, once you go into a market segment, they've got different product packages. They've got good, better, best product packages inside the market segment they've defined different pricing metrics. So if in the sales group, which I happen to know the best of all the four groups, um, I can buy more in-mails. So I can buy the ability to send more emails to people that aren't in my network. Um, and, and so they've got, they've done a phenomenal job at their packaging so that they can do a great job with their pricing. I hadn't thought about LinkedIn. That's an intriguing answer, but it is a surprise. But then as you explained it, I said, they do get it. It's so subtle. And their whole model is based on value-based pricing. Yeah. And can I I've add something? A lot. Absolutely. I want, add, I want to add something to what you just said, right? You've never thought of it that way. And, and it's so subtle. But in truth, if you put yourself on LinkedIn side of the fence, it's complicated as heck what they're doing. But if you put it on our side of the fence where we're trying to make a decision, oh, I'm a salesperson, I can choose between good, better, best, it's really simple. And mm -hmm. that's what's magical about what they've done. Yes, I agree. I was going to say I've used them for recruiting and they have a very specific good, better, best and also sub-segments. I'm a small business. I can't place the value of a hire that a, you, a Bank of America can place for a similar role. And so they targeted my pricing to make it palatable to me for that volume of business I would give them. And for Bank of America, it's something completely different. It sort of, it pushes on some things that are in your book. And I don't want to give that away. I want people to go buy your book. But um, it pushes on the notion of segmentation. You said it earlier, people with common problems. And I would extend and say it's also people with more common behaviors, right? So a segment is a group, common problems, common jobs to be done. And then the pricing angle depends on the economic factors that drive them to do that. So you're right, it is complex, but you seem to have a way of making it simple. Can you um, talk a little bit about <clears throat> the most recent book you have, because I want to dig into that because it's actually 
I was, I, when I looked at it, read through it, I was surprised at the title. I didn't think about associating you with selling methods, but your angle on this is different. So talk about some of the approaches you've identified in the book, how to sell more at higher prices. Yeah. Can, can I start by saying uh, one, I, I started out my career as an engineer. I moved into sales and I was quite possibly the world's worst salesperson ever. Right. So, so you're not going to learn from me because I'm an awesome salesperson. Uh, and so then you go 30, 40 years later in life. And, and I've learned all these lessons about pricing and value. And I can look back at what I did as a salesperson and, and almost be embarrassed that I called myself a salesperson. It was hey, Mark, that some bad. of the best teachers could not play the game well, right? Some of the best coaches could not play the game well. So it's perfectly okay. <laughs> but but I just want to point out that, you know, I, I've lived it, but not well. I, I learned I learned a ton from it. So when I think about the what we want to do is as selling value, what we're always doing is putting ourselves in the shoes of our buyers and understanding what they're thinking. Now, the very first step that I always take is I ask people, is my buyer making a will I decision or a which one decision? And what this essentially says is, is my buyer considering me or nothing? Or is my buyer considering me or a competitive alternative? And when it's me or nothing, it turns out they're not price sensitive. And the decision they're trying to make is, what's the value of solving my problem? Whatever the problem happens to be. When it's me versus a competitor, suddenly price is a really important factor. And what they're asking isn't, what's the value of solving the problem? It's, how are you different? And what's the value of the differentiation? Or to say it differently, let's assume your product is more expensive. Is it worth it? So now price is all about the comparative price between two products, where before it was about the relative value of solving their problems. It, it brings to mind another piece of insight, I think, that's in the book that I just glommed onto because I, I was a salesperson also. And I can't, I don't know if I was the worst salesperson in the world, but I was probably ill-fitted for the job. <laughs> I learned how to survive. I learned how to make a living, but it was a struggle. And one of the things that I learned stepping away from this, this is right out, it's just a segment out of your book that just resonated, is knowing whether or not your buyer is an expert or not, because the way you interact with them will be completely different, right? And I'm going to steal a phrase from the book. It says, experts buy features and everybody else buys benefits. And as a salesperson, Mark, I have to admit, I was really good at selling the features, whether I was dealing with somebody who was an expert or not. Talk a little about your thinking behind then what do we need to do in the selling motion to get aligned with our buyers? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, so, so I like to call what you used to do. And by the way, what I used to do, I call that showing up and throwing up. There you go. Yeah, we we can spew our features really well. We know them. And in fact, my favorite sales technique was watch me list all my features. And I'm watching your eyes to see if maybe you show a little interest. <laughs> little body language to say, yep, that's the one. <laughs> so, so let me change the quote that you just gave out of my book for just a brief moment. And that is everybody actually buys benefits. But experts 
are able to take your features and translate them into benefits. But most of us, if we're not an expert, we don't know how to do that. Uh, and so imagine that uh, you're walking into Best Buy and you've never bought a computer before in your life. And all of a sudden the salesperson starting to list computer features, right? How many gigabytes of RAM and how many terabytes of disk drive and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, uh, does it do email? Right? Can, <laughs> can, can I, I get on the my, internet? <laughs> right, can I get on the internet? Right? But because you don't know. Right. But on the other hand, if you're an expert, which I assume we've been using computers forever, uh, we walk into Best Buy and somebody says, yeah, this one's really good with email. You're like, are you an idiot? Right. We, we, we need the data. We need the info. And so what we want to do as a salesperson, if we're going to sell, is know who it is we're talking to. We know everybody wants to buy the benefit, but experts don't want to be told about the benefits. They want to be told about the features. And those of us who aren't experts, whatever that happened for whatever product category, you have to tell us about the benefits because we don't know what the features do. So this is an interesting dynamic you raise from a different lens, which is really exciting. So during the course of this podcast, short history, I've been raising the issue of buyer shift in behavior, buyer centric behavior. And we all understand that in the world that we live in, buyers have more information about our products than they ever had before. And in some instances, instances they know more about our products than we do um, because of communities, because of all this democratization of information. Egress Solutions is a high-touch product growth and market success consultancy. Since 2009, Egress Solutions has had successful engagements with the top technology organizations, delivering insights into buyer preferences, product market fit, product management, and go-to market excellence. Egress Solutions accelerates top-line growth and market success for our clients. Go to www.egresssolutions.net to learn more. What changes now when we start approaching, from your perspective, and I'm looking at the book maybe for some answers, and maybe they're there, maybe they're not, but what changes now from a selling perspective given this dynamic? I show up, I'm a salesperson, I'm talking to you, and I start telling you about the great features of my phone. It's called a Pixel 7 Mark, and it does all this stuff, and you say, I read the I read the report. I've seen the news. I've seen the reviews. What changes then must a salesperson now do to have that conversation? And more importantly, to the point of your book, is selling the value of the solution relative to others. What advice are you giving salespeople at this stage? Yeah. So, so step number one is you have to clearly understand what's the problem that your buyer is trying to figure out when they're talking to you. Uh, so I typically create a two by two matrix and the two by two matrix goes, is the buyer making a will I decision? So are they trying to decide, am I going to buy something in the product category or not? Or if they already said, yes, I'm going to go buy something now, which one am I going to go buy? And they've said, look, I'm going to go to the which one decision. And then the other thing to remember is there's uh, a, for, let's call it the Y axis or the, you know, the vertical section we've got, Buyers making a, doing a ton of research before they ever come talk to us. They've been on the internet. They know what all the features are. Or buyers that talk to salespeople. 
And so you can imagine there's four quadrants there now. Mm-hmm. Everybody starts in that top left quadrant. Am I going to buy something in the product category? And I got to go make that decision on my own. Unless you've got salespeople that are cold calling and trying to t- say, convince you that you have a problem so that you'll go spend money, which is really hard to do. Right. So let's let's say that someone says, yes, I've got a problem. Now, how do they get to a purchase from that point? And what you described, Mike, is someone that moves across. So, so I've said, yes, I have a problem. The first thing I want to do is I'm going to go do a ton of research. So I go online, I read reviews, I look at all the alternatives. This is the most price sensitive buyer out there. These people are what's called an analytical journey. So if they ever have to talk to a salesperson, by the time they come talk to you, the only thing they care about is how are you different than someone else? Hmm. And so you've got to be thinking, what's the differentiation of my product relative to whatever they brought to me? And then can I translate that into value to them? As in, what problems do they have that my differentiation can solve? Really important. The second way they might be doing this, and this is way, this is, this is like awesome, that the buyer says, hey, I've got a problem. I don't want to waste all this time on the research, going through stupid reviews and all that. I'm going to go call my buddy who said, you know, this is this is what you should uh, consider. And so he calls us as a salesperson. We get a chance to, to say, well, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Oh, we would probably solve it this way. And we're starting to coach them through the value of solving the problem. Now, maybe that buyer says, thank you so much for the help. I really appreciate it. I have to go look at a couple competitive alternatives. Great. We just built a huge competitive advantage because we got to help them know that we care about them solving their problems. Now, here's the best of all. The buyer says, hey, I've got a problem. They come and talk to us. We help them solve the problem and they say, how much does it cost? And write the check. And so I call this a trust journey where they never ever looked at a competitive alternative. What is so important to us as salespeople is we have to recognize that those buyers are out there. And and by the way, we have to not push them into competitive alternatives. Mm -hmm. So you're describing something. I don't want to, I've been out of sales a long time, but I would say this, even when I was selling the ability of the salesperson to sense where they are in this, where their customers or their buyers are in this journey is rare. They're not trained to do it. It's not the muscle they develop. So in your book, you're describing an approach. And it's really not just a sales challenge or sales problem, right? It affects all parts of the organization. So tell us when you go into a situation, how do you how do you make this? This is a sea change. How do you how do you navigate this? Because you can't just go into the CRO and start telling her all of these things that need to be done because it changes everything around them. Talk a little bit about what you have to do or what's optimal for you to do when you go in and try and address these issues. I have to tell you, this is actually so easy to do uh, in, in the following sense. You always walk in the door asking about the problem they're trying to solve and what's the value of solving that problem. And they might say to you, yeah, yeah, I don't need I don't need help with that. We've already made that decision. We're looking at you versus something, something. Now we know where, where we are in the sales situation, right? It's us versus a competitive alternative. But if all we do is we talk to them about what's the value of solving the problem, we never even mention a competitor exists. 
We are solely doing consultative selling, trying to help them. And then you're really curious. Are you looking at competitors or not? Never ask that question. The question I love to ask is, so, so if you don't buy this, what will you do? And the implication is there isn't another alternative out there. Mm-hmm. If they're looking at competitors, they'll say, oh, well, if we don't buy this, we're going to buy from XYZ company. Great. Now I know we're up against competition. Right. Got it. And as you look at post winning the deal, talk about the engagement process that you have to go through to get the organization aligned to help make this change. I'm assuming what you're proposing isn't just contained within the sales organization. There are probably parts of the company that have to go along with this, marketing, sales enablement, and others. Yeah, especially marketing, right? I I think that we have to decide what are our buyers tend to be like. And when a buyer walks in the door, are they almost always walking in looking at us versus a competitor? So if I'm selling Audis, I'm guessing that they're already looking at BMW or Mercedes or other cars very similar to that. But, but if I'm selling a new CRM system, if I'm selling a new piece of factory equipment, uh, I could make the assumption that a lot of people come to us first and they're not saying, is it you versus someone else? Now, the reason this is so important is because when we put out our marketing material, does marketing say, hey, we're Audi, we're better than all the rest? Or does it say, hey, we're this piece of factory equipment, we're going to make you 100 times more efficient than you are today? Because those are two very different messages. Mm -hmm. One is, I'm solving your problem. The other is, we're better than our competitors. Right. And, and, And so... Think about that from a marketing perspective. Do we want to ever mention competitors or imply there's competitive alternatives in the marketplace as we start to bring in customers? It might depend upon the segmentation of your buyers, right? If you are stuck in a space of analytical journeys, buyers on an analytical journey, you have no choice. Absolutely right. And and you may find that there are situations where people don't don't compare you to competitive alternatives. And then there are situations where they do. Um, So let me see an easy example. If I go to the grocery store, I can choose between Coke and Pepsi. If I go to McDonald's, I can choose between Coke and Coke. Right. And, And so I found a situation where you don't get to choose from my competitors. You can only choose my products. Right. Where does the impact of pricing strategy come into play here? How do you layer that into this process then? We're changing the way salespeople approach, obviously giving them a sense of how to offer value. And then what happens with the pricing? And the reason I'm asking is because in many organizations, especially in a B2B SaaS space, pricing is still considered the remit of finance. That's where it's cordoned off. There's a fence around it. It's It's got warning signs around it. So how do you engage then the, the actual landed price as a mechanism to help support what's happening on the selling side of this? Yeah, so, so I want to define pricing for a second, if I may. Okay. I'm going to define it differently than you've probably heard it defined before. But I want to define pricing as all of the things it takes 
to close the most deals at the highest price we could possibly get. Now, that if you believe that is pricing, all of a sudden that says, hey, we're helping salespeople be more effective. We're helping marketing people find more people. We're, uh, by the way, we're documenting the value of our products so that we can help salespeople sell the value of our products. Uh, we're watching which salespeople sell at which prices. We're creating escalation processes when you need discounts for negotiations. Uh, we're working with product people so they can create products that actually have more value in the marketplace. And so all of that, in my mind, is, is pricing. And the reason is pricing, and this is, I, this is so sad to say, pricing is the only department that really thinks about value to the customer. Hmm. Now, I think every department should. Oh, my God, that's, the, that's why I'm focused on this fourth book. But every, every customer, every department should be saying, what's value to the customer and how, we do our, how do we do our job better? But, um, but today, in most companies, it's pricing. Now, what's sad is when you put pricing under finance, that's no longer the case. When pricing is in finance department, it's all about, well, what's our average margin? What's our average discount? And nobody's thinking about what's the value to the customer. And that's got to be the single most important change any company could make. When you see that in an organization, path forward, is it is it something that you work around? Is it something you work coach organizations to work around? How do you, how do you how do you untether that dynamic? Because as you know, it exists in a lot of companies. <clears throat> yeah, and and so I think what we have to do is we have to get the CFO to expand the view. Let, let's pretend the pricing department respond uh, reports to finance reports to the CFO. We need to get the CFO to expand their vision of what the pricing department is. And so the pricing department isn't a bunch of analysts or people who are managing a price book. The pricing department is a bunch of internal consultants that are helping other departments, other divisions figure out how do we get the most um, from the, the knowledge, the capabilities, the technology that we have inside our company. Um, I think that's the single best way to structure a pricing department. And if you're going to structure it that way, I actually don't care where it belongs, where it, where it reports to. I care about what it does. You're changing the charter, not the reporting structure, which is absolutely, I, I agree with that completely. Um, that's something you can actually, you could, as an outside consultant and even organizational people can actually work to do. That that's that's makes sense. How... Can you share some success stories, places you've been, clients you've worked with where you've seen this dynamic play out? And what, what does good look like when that when that's done? Oh, this one's this one's a challenging one. Let's see. Nobody changes quickly, and it almost always is incremental. Let's make a step at a time. Uh, my favorites are when I work with smaller companies because the CEO gets involved and says, here's what we're going to go do. Um, I have to say, probably one of my favorite experiences in the recent past is I did a, a value workshop with a company. The CEO and a bunch of the executives were, were in the room. And the next day, they were working on their product roadmap. Okay. And what was fascinating is everything that came up in the product roadmap is, well, how? what's the value to the customer? 
because we could shift their thinking to what does value to the customer actually mean? And so that was just this phenomenal insight or, or, or experience. I loved it. Let's give you a hypothetical role in an organization. Mid-size organization, approximately $100 million in ARR, chief growth officer. Given what your expertise is, what you know, what you've been doing with clients, and assuming it's not optimized around the value pricing and value selling principles that you have, it's still using, pricing is still fenced off in finance. What would you prioritize? How would you go about doing the pieces and putting the pieces as an insider to get the shift moving the direction you would like to see it go? Yeah, so I think there's some tactical things we can do and there's some very strategic things we can do. The very strategic things are, we've got to get a set of questions that everybody is always asking. Um, I've never worked for them, but uh, the company Gore, Gore-Tec, the company that makes Gore-Tex, um, okay. I've had a gentleman named Mark. Oh my God, Mark, I'm sorry, I forget your last name. Uh, he, he wrote a book, he used to work for them. Uh, but but he says that if you ask anybody to finish, to complete the sentence, anybody in the company could do it. And the question is, what's the, and everybody will say the word value. What's the value? And, and so we need to get everybody in our company asking that question and understanding what the answer might look like, how to think about the answer. And as we can start to train that into the entire company, then the rest of what we're going to do is so much easier. Now, the probably the single, the first tactical thing I would do is I would focus on market segmentation. And the way I do that is I take a look at all of our current customers and I say, what do they care about? Because different customers use different things, care about different things. And so imagine for a second that we're a SaaS company, we have usage data. Uh, so we know which features are being used, which features aren't being used by which companies. We could now say, oh, look, these customers use this set of features, but don't use this set of features. And these other customers use this set of features, but not this other set of features. If you think about it, we build features to solve problems. Right. We're going to use problems to differentiate or, or define our market segments. So this is a great indicator of where are our market segments? Who's different? Why are they different? Once we start to understand that market segmentation better, now we can start to say, okay, in this market segment, what might we do for product portfolio? How do we capture more value for them? How do we deliver more value to them? This journey you're describing, long path, 24 months, 36 months longer, what's your, what's your guesstimate tell you? That somebody says, I'm on it, I want to do it. What, what's the prediction for a, incremental pieces, not, not the destination, but how, how do you define sort of milestones along the way from a timing standpoint? Yeah, so, so in my mind, I've broken pricing up into short-term wins and long-term wins. And so there are lots of short-term wins, short-term wins out there we could get. For example, we could go raise prices tomorrow. Now right. we don't want to do it across the board. We want to do it intelligently. Which customers get the most value from our products? Which customers are least likely to leave us if we raise their prices? Right. So, so we can do this really smart and get some short-term wins. Uh, and so I would say that's you know less than six-month project right there. Mm -hmm. uh, you want a medium-term win. 
Uh, what if we say, look, we want, we've got a, a great product in the marketplace today, uh, but we keep discounting it too much so that we can win a bunch of customers. So what if we build um, a lower end version of our product, whether we actually change the product or not, we just, we just change the specifications and say it doesn't have these features, even right. if they're there, who cares? And, uh, and so we can charge the same price or a slightly lower price for that and raise the price on the product that people are buying all of our features for. So it's a relatively easy change to our product portfolio. It doesn't take a bunch of design work and, and we can get that in the marketplace and grow both revenue and margin at the same time because we just did that. Um, so I, the big ones, I want to restructure the entire product portfolio. I want to train the whole sales organization. Those are years. Those right? take years. Yes, yes. <laughs> And, and by the way, if you're the new C, CGO, chief growth officer, you wouldn't do that first six months in the job. You, you, <laughs> it would be a short career path for you. Um, I want to ask you something I love to ask people because when I get, Mark, people like you here, I always find their energy is just, they're present, their energy is high. Where do you turn for inspiration? Who do you follow? People, and I've gotten some really diverse answers, whether it's people inside the industry, people outside the industry. I had one person come in and say they take long walks and it inspires them. So there's no right answer. I'm just curious. And I think people want to know, okay, somebody like this, what do they, what do they, what do they eat for breakfast in the morning, right? What, what do they put in their coffee? That I, it's that sort of question to really try and understand how do you keep yourself going? What keeps you moving? Um. So, <laughs> I was about to say, I'd like to think I know everything, but I know I don't, right? <laughs> you could have said that. <laughs> no, I read a lot of different opinions from different pricing people, uh, different uh, technology people, uh, VC firms, PE firms. I love the content they put out. And what I always do is I say, oh, that fits in my frameworks like this because I have a series of frameworks that I use all the time with the way I think about the world. And occasionally I find something that doesn't fit. And I love that. I was going to say, what do you do when you find that something doesn't work in the frameworks? Oh, that's the whole point is now I get to go change the framework. Right? Right. Now I get to, I'll give you one that happened to me 20 years ago, right? I was convinced that good, better, best is the right way to go. Right. And then uh, and then I started thinking, well, how do you do hourly based pricing with good, better, best? Stumped and, me. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know either. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> so so the way I ended up structuring or restructuring my frameworks was, well, good, better, best doesn't seem like a very smart way to do price. I'm not. No, no, I'm sorry. I made that. I messed that up. Hourly based pricing doesn't seem like a very good way to do pricing, does it? And in fact, it's not. The more you watch right. it and research it, you say, oh my God, that's insane. Why would you do that? Uh, now I could give you some exceptions to the rule and when we would mm -hmm. do it. But but as a framework, it's like, well, we got to get rid of that. We got to keep this piece because this works really well. That's a good one. That's a good one. Mark, I really appreciate you stepping in and, and, and let me ask you all of these questions. Um, and I appreciate your honesty and your authenticity today and, and your insights more than anything else, because I think you've taught me and anybody listening a lot about pricing that we may have 
assume some very different things. If someone wanted to reach out to you and get in touch with you to learn more about what you do, how would they do that? What's the best way for people to touch base with you? Um, two ways. Number one, I practically live on LinkedIn. So follow me on LinkedIn. That's easy. And if you want, send me an email, mark at impactpricing.com. Okay. Excellent. Mark, appreciate you joining. And to the listeners out there, thank you for listening. We appreciate your downloads. We appreciate your reviews. This has been Go to Market Disrupted. Till next time, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Egress Solutions, head on over to www.egresssolutions.net.